Acts chapter 13. This morning, I am hoping it's going to be all about encouragement. One of the things Dustin and I have talked about as we've been going through the book of Acts is, um, you know, you get this, um, the success of the gospel and then you have the persecution and we see, and you see that throughout the book. And, uh, it can become challenging sometimes because you don't want to keep repeating the same theme over and over and over and depress people. You know, but yet, that's the way the text is presented. And so when you have periods in the text where it's about persecution, we've got to talk about persecution. Um, but it can become somewhat discouraging, I think, at times. And so I sent Dustin a list of the, the points from the, our time this morning from the teaching here. And I just, I think I put it at the end of it. But the focus is going to be on encouragement. Because if you look, just look at the points, it might not be. But my, my hope is today that we'll walk away from here with some encouragement. I want to start out with some stats for us. For years, experts have been um, saying that Christianity here in the United States is on the decline. I'll give you some numbers here. According to Gallup, church attendance has been declining for decades. Um, the steepest decline actually happened in the last 20 years. You all have been probably in statistics at some point in high school. I think they've probably been teaching them since God was a kid. But you always have the bell curve. You know, that's the way things kind of work, you know. Everything seems to accelerate until you get to the top of that, that peak. Well... What's basically been happening in church attendance here is there's been accelerate the um, the reduction in church attendance has been accelerating over time, with the greatest decline happening in the last 20 years. Back in 1948, 76% of Americans went to church. Back in 2020, that dropped only 47%. I think we've probably all seen that. I know I have in my lifetime. Most of the kids I went to high school with all went to the same church we did. It was a large Catholic church of about 5,000 people or so. And um, a lot of my teachers, I'd see them at church. It was pretty common. It's not quite so much anymore. In fact, when I first started working for Chicago Title, I would say probably about 60-70% of the people I worked with all went to church. I'm not sure that's really true today. I think the majority of them probably don't. Every year, an increasing number of Americans claim no religious affiliation. It's especially true among, guess who? The millennials. Those 20 to 40 year old kids, I'll call them. 36% claim that they're either atheist, agnostic, or non religious. You've heard the phrase, the nuns. They actually refer to these millennials oftentimes as the nuns. They have no affiliation of any kind when it comes to religious things. That's pretty much true. These numbers here line up pretty much anywhere in the Western world, which would be the Americas, Europe, and then. Australia kind of fits into that, and that's been the case. Europe has been declining for years. There are parts of Europe now where they say maybe 3 to 5% of Europeans in some places go to church on a Sunday morning. That's a pretty small number. Now, one word of caution here is we kind of have to be careful when you hear these experts talk about the decline in attendance and Christianity losing its impact here in the United States because... You know, there's a lot of people that get thrown into the, the, the group called Christians, and so, you know, I was talking with a young man at work the other day who hasn't been to church in years. He was raised in a Methodist church, but from a very young age, no longer decided to attend, and his parents allowed him to opt out. But he made sure to tell me, but I, but I am a Christian. But he doesn't really understand the gospel, doesn't know Jesus Christ personally, but he says he's a Christian. And sometimes in these polls, you know, they get lumped in with that. I just saw another poll recently here where about 40% of those that would sort of fit into that millennial category of those who consider themselves, actually claim that they are born-again Christians, which you would think would only be 
genuinely saved people that would use that label, but about 40% of them who claimed to be born-again Christians didn't believe that Jesus Christ was the only way to heaven, believed that Buddha and Confucius and others were all just as valid as Christianity. That tells me they're not truly born-again Christians. So we have to be careful with some of these stats, but let's just say it's all true. I think we probably sense that that is the case, at least here in the United States, that Christianity is on the decline, fewer people are going to church, the church is not having the impact that it used to have. So let's, let's assume that's true. There's any number of reasons that experts give us why that's been taking place. The breakdown of the family is one. Um, the growing influence of wealth. It's interesting how wealth oftentimes leads to a decline in church, where poverty oftentimes increases attendance at church. So some say that's part of our problem here is we're just way too affluent. You've heard me use the phrase before. I think we're all just too fat and happy. You know, Remember what happened to Israel when things got really, really good in the book of Judges? start to forget about God. So God would bring oppressor, oppressors on them. Then they'd all start whining and moaning and complaining. And they'd cry out to God and commit themselves to him and he would send them a judge and rescue them. And then things are good for a little bit. God's blessings are poured out upon them and then what happens? They start to forget about God again. They get fat and happy. So that might be one reason. Um, another reason might be the increased emphasis on children's sports on the weekends. It used to be that Sundays was off the table. Wednesdays were off the table. Sunday nights were off the table. How dare you have a sporting event on? Well, now, you know, my brother does a lot of um, uh, soccer and stuff like that, and they've had things on the weekends and games on Sundays. I know the Ransovers have struggled with that too, meaning that so much of the sports today, many of us have struggled with that. You know, and so some have said that's partly to blame for maybe attendance at church. Um, an increase in travel. It used to be families took one vacation a year. Now, oftentimes, there's more than one, and there's weekend trips and um, stuff like that, and they say that impacts. And so there's all kinds of reasons why they um, give for this. I personally um, think that probably the biggest reason that we see the decline here is because the church is not doing its job. It's amazing. Notice I said that the decline has been the sharpest in the last 20 years. What happened about 20, 30 years ago? seeker-sensitive movement, the change in the church where we began to make church a place to attract the unsaved and we handed over the service to the unsaved and we no longer were making disciples, which means you no longer have workers going out into the harvest, seeing people saved. You can debate that. That's my opinion. But any way you look at it, it can become a little bit discouraging. None of us like to look around and see what's happening in our world today. We don't like to see... um, Christianity being hated or spurred or tossed aside. We don't like to see attendance in our churches declining. But I have to remind us that we're kind of missing something here. We're overlooking the fact that the church is seeing massive growth in all kinds of other parts of the world. Not a little bit. Massive growth. And we have to keep our eyes on that. Um, Growth in Christianity has actually shifted from the northern hemisphere, which would be the U.S. and Europe, and it's now shifting or has shifted down to the southern hemisphere. South America, Africa, and Asia are some of the fastest-growing areas of Christianity right now. Um, it's growing fastest in Africa, Asia, and then something called the Asia or the Arab Peninsula. Get this. Eleven of the top 20 countries where Christianity is growing the fastest are Muslim countries, including Iran, of all places, where persecution is most severe. But that's where Christianity is growing. China, for instance, massive growth in underground churches. But what's been happening in China? They've been clamping down on it like crazy. 
Africa actually has more Christians than any other continent. Estimated 390 million Christians in Africa. They expect that to be over 600 million by 2050. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that God is still working. Even though we look around here and we see what's happening, God is still working. It kind of reminds us of history, what happened when Europe fell apart and Christianity started to die, if you will, in Europe. What happened here? The United States explodes with Christianity. So, what do we do with this? Why do I share this? Well, we live in the U.S., and many of us see what's happening here with Christianity and the American church, and it becomes a little bit discouraging to look around But when we broaden our perspective, when we look outside of this, we see that the Lord is doing exactly what he said he would do, which is to build his church. There's no question about that. So we ought to be encouraged by that. And so I want to look at this passage today, Acts chapter 13. We're going to look at, it's really two passages sort of put together. There's some similarities between the two sections as we look at them. I want to use these similarities to draw out some principles that I think will give us some perspective on this and some things that can actually encourage us. Now, in order to do that, I'm going to take a little bit different. Usually, I kind of go just verse by verse in order. Today, I'm going to read the whole passage. And then what I'm going to do is to give us a couple of principles that we can use and then pull from different sections of this and put them together into these principles for us. So, I'm going to go ahead and read verse, uh, starting in verse 44 of chapter 13. I'm sorry, chapter 13, starting in verse 44. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw that the crowds, or when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul, and they were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it, And judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. I'm going to look at three principles here. The first principle is this. The Lord is going to continue to grow his church in spite of opposition. I think that's the first thing that we're going to see here. Throughout the book of Acts so far, we've seen this tremendous success of the gospel. You can't argue with that. We see multitudes upon multiples of both Jews and Gentiles all coming to Christ. That's the story of the book of Acts. Intermingled with that, we see persecution and opposition. And so we're going to see that in our passage today. 
After Paul and Barnabas preached in a place called Pisidian Antioch, remember Antioch was their primary church. That's kind of where they started their missionary journeys from and then left. Well, there's another place called Pisidian Antioch. It was another city of Antioch and a place called the Pisidian region. And so, or district, it was a Roman district. And so that's where they basically are at initially when this starts. And Luke tells us that the people, both Jews and Greeks, followed them out of the synagogue and they actually begged them. Remember, that was our passage from last week. Look at verse, uh, chapter 13, verses 42 and 43. They went into the synagogues in Pisidian Antioch. They preached the gospel. And as they're leaving, we read this. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Talk about excitement there. Can you imagine that? These people, Paul and Barnabas, can't even get away. They're, they're going out. You've got to come back. You've got to share with us more. You've got to talk to us more. That's how this all kind of started. Well, when they showed up at the synagogue next week, which is where we're at today, it says the whole city gathered. Now, there's probably some hyperbole on Luke's part, but what he meant was a whole lot of people showed up. The synagogue was packed. It was a mix of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, those who could probably converted to Judaism. So he says, the whole city gathered to hear the word, verse 44. Down in verse 49, it says, the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole entire region as a result of this, which means likely those who had heard it also began to speak about it and share it, and so it began to spread through the, the region. The result, we're told, is found in verse 48. If you look at verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. We see the same thing when Paul and Barnabas actually go down to Iconium, which is the second city. Look down at verse 1 of chapter 14. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together, and they spoke in a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. And so we see that there is this tremendous impact that Paul and Barnabas had had in preaching the gospel. People were coming to Christ. This pattern is what we see throughout the book of Acts. In fact, it's what we see in all of history. And we're told in the text here, really, what why that is. I believe it's a direct result of the sovereignty of God. The reason people were coming to Christ is because God ordained that it would be so. The reason people come to Christ today, the reason why Africa and other places are exploding, the reason why persecuted persecuted believers in China are still preaching the gospel and spreading and meeting in home churches is because God ordained that that would be the case. It's all a part of his sovereignty. I want you to look back at verse 48 again. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And look at this. And as many as had been appointed, that's a divine sovereignty issue, had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Look back at uh, Matthew chapter 16, if you will. Matthew chapter 16. Jump down into verse 18. Actually, we'll start at verse 17. You all know this this story. And Jesus said to him, meaning Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, that was a play on Peter's name, Upon this rock I will build my church. The rock there likely is probably not Peter himself. It's a play on Peter's name, but it probably is referring to the statement Peter had made that Jesus is the Christ. It's upon that rock, that foundation, that the Lord is going to do something. He says, I will build my 
church. And the gates of hell, the gates of Haiti, will not prevail against it. That is a promise Christ gave to the apostles. I'm going to build my church. It's a done deal. Nothing is going to be able to prevail against that. It's probably the strongest statement we have on the sovereignty of God when it comes to what he's going to do with the church. Luke actually wrote in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, the Lord was adding to their numbers daily those who were being saved. Who was it doing the work? The Lord was adding to their numbers. In the New Testament, Christians are referred to as those whom God has predestined, those who God has called, those who God has chosen. All of those refer to divine acts of God. You know, the thing that I'm struck by is when we start a church, there's a hope and a goal, and we, we kind of strategically do that. We didn't do it here necessarily because the goal wasn't to launch some, some new church. But I've been a part of church plants in the past, and every I know plenty of people who've gone out to start churches, and you immediately come up with a game plan, and you put these things in place to, to grow the church, and it involves things like reaching out to the community and doing certain things, and there's always this plan that you want to work, right? And with that always comes the hope that it will grow and and everything else, you know, and that's all a good thing, but the reality of it is, it's ultimately dependent upon God's sovereignty. God is the one that causes the growth. God is the one who does what he wants to do, and that is both in the individual life and in the life of the church and and other things, and that really ought to encourage us. We can argue all day long about the debate between God's sovereignty and the statement here. Sure many of you are probably still looking at that passage going, appointed to eternal life. I thought I had a choice. Well, that's for another time that we can debate God's, you know, our free will with God's sovereignty. Um, I'll tell you right now, it can't be resolved because both are true. And we don't know how that always works, but that's the case. But the reality of it is, God is sovereign and he is going to do what he promised he would do in spite of the opposition. So the success of the gospel, guaranteed, will come in spite of the growing opposition. That's the promise to us. Just as we see the gospel succeeding in the book of Acts, we also see opposition grow throughout the book of Acts. The same is true in our passage today. After Paul and Barnabas preached in Antioch, On the second Sabbath, they faced opposition. So this initial excitement, I'm sure they were, they couldn't wait to get to the Sabbath the next Sunday or the next Saturday because they were begged to come back. Look at verse 45 of chapter 13 again. It says, but when the Jews saw the crowds, uh oh, they were filled with jealousy and they began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and they were blaspheming. Jump down to verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of their district. So we see just as the success of the gospel, as much as the gospel is a success, we also see that there is opposition that grows as well. Here we see it says the Jews were becoming jealous because the Gentiles were showing an interest in the gospel. That's kind of a pattern. We see it elsewhere in the scriptures. In the Old Testament with Joseph's brothers becoming jealous when God is using him. We see it later in chapter 17 with Acts where the Jews become jealous again and lash out and attack Paul. So we see this jealousy lead to persecution and driving Paul and Barnabas out of the city. 
Now, the same thing happened in Iconium. Go down into chapter 14, verses 2 through 5. I'm going to read those again for us. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some of them sided with the Jews and some of them with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and they had to flee the city. And so we see this opposition grow. Luke, in this passage, actually shed some light on it. As for their motives, they were jealous. It was a simple matter. As for tactics, they kind of used the oldest tactics in the book here. Did you notice that? Um, they didn't debate the content of what Paul and Barnabas were preaching. Actually, it says they were contradicting this thing, the things spoken by Paul by blaspheming him. It's, it's a little bit different than maybe what you see in your text, but there's a participle there. It says that they were contradicting the things Paul said, not by talking about the things Paul said, but by blaspheming him. In other words, saying things about him that were untrue. Isn't that the way it works? If you can't win the argument on the facts, what do you do? You go for the personal attack. They were disparaging Paul, saying things that were untrue about Paul and Barnabas. They couldn't argue with the gospel. In fact, we're told that elsewhere in the in the book of Acts, that they could not debate that. So, remember the false witnesses that were raised up against Peter and John earlier, or James? Um, That's the way they operate, and that's exactly the way they operated here. They resorted to personal attacks. Like the idiom says, if you can't win the argument based on the facts, rely on personal attacks. That's the way it was. They made false claims about Jesus, didn't they? It's the only way they could deal with Jesus. They make false claims about us today too, don't they? They call us judgmental. They call us hate mongers. They call us homophobic. They call us bigots. They say we're science deniers. They say we're unloving. Anybody else want to volunteer some terms? You know? But that's what they do. None of which are true. They might be true on some individuals, you know. But for the most part, that's not true of the church. We love Christ. We reflect Christ. So when we talk about some of these issues... They again immediately attack us. That's what we face. But the success of the gospel, the growth of the body of Christ, is one of God's promises to us in spite of this. That's the promises he gives us. Jesus told us that the harvest was plentiful, but the workers were few. All he needed was workers to go out. He's already done the planting. He just needs people to reap. And he tells us that we'll be able to reap. That's the promise. He's going to grow his church. I had this uncle, Uncle Dave. He used to be a pickle farmer. He's done a lot of things in his life. Um, But he was a pickle farmer for a while. And whenever it came time to now go out of the field and reap the pickles, he would drive down to Mexico and he would basically hire a bunch of Mexican immigrant workers and they would come up and they would pick his fields. All they had to do was to go in and pick. He had done everything else. He didn't bring them up to do all the farming and planting. He brought them up simply to pick. And in some respects, that's what Jesus has done for us. God's already doing the work. Our job is just to go out and pick. No guarantee that everybody we witness to is going to come to Christ, going to accept the gospel. But there are people out there 
waiting to be picked. Because God has ordained it to be so. I think I shared with you um, something that happened last Sunday with Amy and I being down at Wits. Um, Amy dragged me down to Wits in protest. Um, and when we got done, I think I shared, I don't want to rehash the whole story, but you know, we had finished, we had gone out and sat on a park bench, if you will, right there on Sandusky Street, and some strange dude all of a sudden just shows up, sits down in front of us. He was in his mid-60s, I think he was 66 is what he said, um, licking away at his ice cream cone, and he just starts talking. We're trying to have a nice little date, you know, my wife and I. Um, but he just starts talking, and we were doing our best to kind of just, you know, but it was, it was strange things, like little odd comments, like, oh, I love Bugs Bunny, out of the middle of nothing, you know? Like, well, that was divine, because Amy's a massive Bugs Bunny fan, you know, so that was a divine thing right there. Gave them something to talk about. Um, God forbid he start talking about IT stuff or anything else that I might be interested in, right? Uh, Amy's yawning. But my point is that we sat there for, what, an hour and a half, Amy? And um, my heart, as he talked, we're just chit-chatting, you know. And we got to get home, and it's hot outside, you know. And, but just something started to percolate in my heart. You know, why would this guy, out of the middle of nowhere, come and sit down and talk to two perfect strangers? He's either lonely or he's crazy. Or it was a divine appointment. And so I began to pray, God, how do we do this? And it ref- I reflected on what we shared last Sunday morning. He shared some things that I thought, how can I use those things to move us towards spiritual discussion and into the gospel? And one of the things he happened to mention was Nostradamus and prophecies about some antichrist. The Bible talks about that, you know. You know, he talked about the corruption in the world that we see. You know, about the politics and all this stuff going on around us. And I went, oh man. Huh. There's a reason behind that. So I started prompting him with some questions, and he would kind of go off the rails a little bit, but then he would come back. And, but we got a great opportunity to just be about as clear in presenting the gospel as I think we probably could have been. And God kept moving him and, and to, to say things. He even mentioned Billy Graham because he brought up how he doesn't like religion because of all the charlatans that are out there, basically, and all they want is your money. But then he's like, but I did like Billy Graham. Oh, you know what Billy Graham taught, right? Billy Graham taught people about the need for Jesus Christ. Okay, and so he starts thinking, you know, but um, what a great opportunity. Now, I, I don't know where he ended up, you know. He did allow me to pray for him. We, before we left, we stood up. I asked him if we could pray for him. I caught him off a little, a little off guard, but he was more than willing. And we did. We prayed for him right there, and we prayed for his daughter or his niece who's going to go live with him. But my point is that I didn't look for that opportunity that afternoon. We didn't go there hoping we could share the gospel with somebody. God brought them on our doorstep. Now, what may happen as a result, we don't know. You know, we'll continue to pray for him and in the hopes that God will convict his heart. Sometimes that's all we have to do. God just, he's got the harvest. We just go out there and try to pick. Some might get discouraged that he didn't get on his knees and say the sinner's prayer right there in front of us. But you know what? It's not my job to convince him to do that. It's the Lord's job. My job is to be there as a harvester, to pick. Because God's going to grow his kingdom. Maybe through RJ, maybe through others. 
And we should be encouraged by that. Paul says in Romans 10.14, and how can they hear unless someone tells them? That's our job. So in spite of the opposition that we see, we just need to be out there picking, out there doing the best we can to be witnesses, because God's going to do, use that then to grow his church in spite of the opposition. So the first principle is he's going to continue to do what he's always done, which is grow his church, even in spite of all the opposition. We just simply have to be the ones that are available to do that. Amen? The second principle is this. We have to remain bold in the face of the opposition. And we do that by remembering who it is that we serve. It's going to require us to be bold. I'll admit, I'm not an evangelist at gifting. So I'm sitting on this bench and I'm like, if I just drop the gospel bomb on this guy, is he going to think I'm some kind of freak? You know? We have a tendency to do that sometimes, you know? And um, it required, I'll be real frank, this is a guy I didn't know. I didn't want to have him go running down the street like, oh no, I sat down next to some preacher dude. And there was a certain amount of trepidation because he didn't come right out and say, hey, would you share the gospel with me? I need to be saved. That would have been easy. So there's a little bit of trepidation there. I, I talked with another gentleman at work not you know, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned to you, bringing up spiritual matters with him and coming around and asking him, are you okay with this if we talk about these things? There's a little bit of trepidation in that. It requires a certain amount of boldness sometimes, doesn't it? Just to start talking to people about Jesus. And so we're going to see that in this passage today. In both passages today, we see Paul and Barnabas express remarkable boldness in the face of opposition. I want you to look back again at verse 46. It says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. You look at verse 3 of chapter 14. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly. Twice in this passage, we're told that Barnabas and Paul had to be... We don't think of Paul as being shy, do we? But it required boldness to do what he did. The emphasis in both of these verses is on boldness when it comes to Paul and Barnabas' preaching. However, I want you to look at verse 3. There's a word there, an important word. It starts off with the word, therefore. What that does, that points back to verse 2. Look at what actually happens there. It says, the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. And therefore, in other words, and because of that, Paul and Barnabas spent a long time there speaking boldly. (laughs) Think about that for a second. It was because of the opposition they faced that they said, you know what, we need to suck it up, put on some boldness, and we're going to stick around a little bit longer. That's courage. That's boldness. Can you imagine what our brothers and sisters face in a place like China? I just learned about um, just a couple of days ago. Um, there was a used to be a church, well, it's still there, but used to be a fairly large Americanized church in China called um, Early Rain. And they were ransacked by the Chinese. The pastor was arrested. The elders were arrested. He spent time in, in prison being beaten and abused. And they've done the best to sort of shut that church down. And they've all kind of gone underground. And so they had a small Bible study. And this was a fairly large church, if I remember right. Um, I'm thinking a couple of thousand people. Um, but they all kind of went underground then, obviously. And so the, the um, Chinese officials just raided one of their home Bible studies. And it was a group of, of these former early rain people. Imagine how they have to get up in the morning every time something like this happens. 
Imagine the courage and the boldness that it takes for them to do what they're doing. There's a saying you might have heard, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And repeat that, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. It's a paraphrase of something the church father Tertullian wrote back about 200 AD. He wrote a book on apologetics. Basically, he kind of used that phrase in there. He was... He wrote the apologetics um, to try to convince Roman governors to allow Christianity to have the same freedoms that other religions had in Rome. And what he had done with that was he basically tried to convince the Romans by looking at the Christians and basically saying, look, when you persecute and kill these people, they multiply. So he was trying to tell the Romans, just leave them alone. Because they're just going to multiply. They're like roaches. Try to kill them, they just keep growing. Some have used that to argue that the church always grows when it's under persecution. That's not really true. There are times where persecution wipes out the church. Think about what happened in Iraq after the Iraq War. Christianity in northern Iraq was almost wiped out. There was at one point almost 1.5 million Christians in northern Iraq Last count I heard, there's maybe 1,500 because of the persecution. And sometimes that happens. Think about in North Korea. You know, they keep pushing down and pushing down and pushing down. And so sometimes persecution really hurts the church, causes it to kind of fade away. But generally speaking, on a larger scale, the church always grows under persecution. It may not always grow in individual pockets of persecution, but... But overall, generally speaking, the more intense the persecution, it drives people to the Lord, much like it did with Israel in the book of Judges, and the church grows. I think the reason for that is, if you look at what Paul and Barnabas did, where did their courage come from? Where did their strength come from? They were able to remain bold in the face of opposition because they never lost sight of who they actually served. Look at verse 3 of chapter 14 again. It says, Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. Got that? With reliance upon the Lord. Now the New American Standard is the only version I believe that translates it that way. If you've got another version of the Bible, it probably, I believe, translates it as speaking boldly for the Lord or about the Lord. That's probably a better rendering of this. The ESV actually says it this way. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly on behalf of or for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. In other words, boldness isn't something we manufacture or muster up. It comes from remembering who we serve and why. Why are we facing the persecution? Why are we facing the opposition? It's because of the one we serve. I think one of the reasons we see so much compromise in the church today, why the church in many respects has become weak, not having the impact that it used to, is because we've forgotten who we serve. In many respects, church has become very narcissistic, very me-centered. I always thought, um, if I ever wrote a book, I would love to, to focus on one thing. I'd love to go and analyze sermons from church after church after church across the United States and analyze it from the perspective of what's the focus. Because oftentimes what we're seeing is many many churches focus on me. You know? Your best life. What you get out of it. 
We call it preaching to felt needs. It's something Dustin and I talk about oftentimes. Preaching to felt needs. Oftentimes, in fact, many seminaries teach their homiletics that that's the way we should preach. You have to have a hook into somebody's life and you really preach to what their needs are. And so you survey and you find out what people want and what their real needs are. And so you preach on those instead of ultimately preaching on Christ. So I would love to do that sometime. Look and, and see because I suspect that what, we're gonna, what we would find in that is that it's all about us. In other words, church has become a social club, much like any other social club. We show up to feel good, to see our friends, and there should be social stuff, right, in a church? We should be a social club, but that's not why we do what we do. It's not who we really are. We are here for one reason, to serve Christ. And it's in remembering that that we become bold and courageous. When it's all about us, When it doesn't meet our needs anymore, what happens? We bail. So if if your reason for showing up for church is because it's all about what you get out of it, when you don't get that out of it anymore, what happens? If Paul and Barnabas were preaching because of the following they had, and all they're getting is opposition, what are they going to do? I'm going to choose a different career. But you see, what gave them their courage and their boldness was that they remembered we are serving the Lord. That's why we do this. In fact, one of the last things that Paul says at the end of his life is that he had run the course. Look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is probably one of my favorite passages of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 4. One of the last things we hear about from Paul in terms of what was on his heart, that at the end of his life he knows that his end is near. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, At my first defense no one supported me, but all deserted me. <laughs> I think Paul was in it for his following. He's like, nobody stood with me. How many years of ministry? He's standing up before the Romans. He knows they're going to put him to death ultimately. And he's alone. There's no following. There's no fanfare. There's no Instagram account with one million followers. He's alone. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me, and he strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And as I was rescued out of the lion's mouth, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That ought to send chills up your spine. When our focus is on who we serve and why, then we're bold. A time is coming here. We don't know how quickly, how intently it might be, But I think a time is coming here where we are going to really be persecuted as Christians. At a minimum, it'll come when we get to the events we see in the book of Revelation. But I think it's going to be sooner than that for us. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but that's just my gut. How are we going to respond? Remember who we serve. That's where the courage and the boldness to continue to serve him will come from. Now where, I mean, we we see more, this is a good thing in some respects. You know, i got a 
text from somebody the other day about uh, uh, testifying about, uh, in front of a school board um, uh, in Buckeye Valley coming up, I think, on Wednesday. More and more Christians have been speaking up about stuff they see. Now, sometimes they're making it about other issues, but people are getting angry. They're getting upset. And sometimes that'll lead them to finally stand up and do some things. But what we're really talking about here is just remembering who we serve and speaking out because of Christ. That's where our courage comes from and our strength. And that ought to encourage us. Because Paul says here, the Lord stood with me when nobody else would. Which means when we as Christians need to stand up and nobody else stands up with us, who will? The Lord. That will encourage us. The last principle I want to look at here, it's pretty short. When one door for the gospel closes, we shouldn't be discouraged. When things get difficult, more difficult to share the gospel or to preach about Christ or to, to talk to our neighbors or family or friends because they're just plain not interested. Oh, I don't want to talk about that because I'm an agnostic. When one of those doors closes, we shouldn't become discouraged by it. Just look for another door. Just look for another door. They'll be there. Remember, the harvest is plentiful. Notice, when the Jews rejected the gospel in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas went to the Gentiles. And look at what happened. Verses 46-49 through of chapter 13. But Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and says, it's necessary that the word of God be spoken to you. First, since you repudiated it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're going to the Gentiles now. They just looked for another opportunity. The Jews shut them down. They didn't get discouraged. They didn't put their tail between their leg and go back home and say, well, it didn't work out. No, they said, we'll go where we're wanted. So they went to the Gentiles. And we're told, if you read all the way through that, back down into verse 48, then the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as been appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. The Lord honored them looking for another door and brought them a great harvest. Look at verse um, chapter 13, verse 50. When the Jews incited devout women in pro- of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of that district, what happened? They shook off the dust on their feet in protest and they went on to Iconium. Keep reading. And the disciples were continually filled with joy in the Holy Spirit in Iconium They entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and Greeks. The Lord closed one door. They didn't get discouraged. They simply moved on to Iconium, where we see that a whole host of Gentiles and Jews came to Christ. Now here's the thing. Not once do we see them get discouraged. Instead, when the door closed, they kept moving, opened the next door, went to the next city, preached the gospel. What about us? It might not be nearly as easy for us right now in the United States. It's certainly getting more difficult. They don't want us talking about it. They don't want teachers talking about their faith in schools. They don't want coaches being able to even pray by themselves on the sideline. Getting debates or arguments with people and they want to label you. Okay, should we become discouraged? No. Just look for another door. Look for something else to open. 
I've shared with you before a couple of individuals that I've been trying to minister to and share the gospel with. Um, I've got one um, that, you know, we, we talk on a somewhat regular basis. And I keep thinking, he's ripe, he's so ripe, he's going to fall off the tree. But he just won't fall off the tree yet. Not going to become discouraged. You know, just look for another opportunity. You know, um, Kimberly's got some people that she shared about here, people from work. And, you know, one of them, a guy by the name of Josh, messed up life. You know, he quit and he's now at another job. Okay? Don't have to get discouraged. Keep praying for him. Look for another opportunity. The people that are around you. Maybe you'll see him again. Maybe you'll be able to share the gospel with him. But when one door closes, and I, and I hate that. I mean, that's such a cliche. But when one door closes, we see that here. Paul and Barnabas didn't give up. They didn't become discouraged. They just kept moving. Look for another opportunity. And we see here, God, both times we see it in this passage, God honored it. And that will be the pattern for the rest of Paul's ministry in the gospel, or in the book of Acts. God will honor it time and time and time again. And he never gets discouraged. Nor should we. I like this passage because, again, I think it gives, gave me an opportunity to focus on not so much the persecution, the opposition, but the promise that God has made to keep doing what he's doing. He promised he would build his church. We look around here, we kind of see what's happening in the United States here, and it discourages us and makes us a little bit, you know, worried and concerned about our own safety and other things. As, as a, but again, we need to take our eyes off that and look back at him and say, but wait a minute, he promised he would build his church. Maybe he'll do it here, maybe not, but he will do what he promised he's going to do. And our job is to be available in any way that he can use us. To not become discouraged, just to keep looking for doors of opportunity, be the witnesses that he asked us to be, and he'll fulfill that. He'll give us, he'll give us victories in those areas. We'll see success. And we still do here. There are still people here, like RJ, or like Josh, or like others that I know at work, I'm sure other people you know, that desperately need Christ. God will build a church.